0: Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. So I began today talking a little bit about that Monsignor Lorenzo Albacete, and uh, I wanna just share more and more stories of him to help us get in touch with these final topics that I'd like us to reflect on together. So Monsignor Albacete was on all sorts of shows, actually. The Charlie Rose Show, he was, inter- he was a writer for um, New York Times. Um, he was interviewed a lot in different places. And uh, I want to share a few stories that kind of really spoke to me that first captured me on what he was seeing and feeling and how he was relating to reality that led me down this path. One day there was a, he was with uh, an apartment in New York with some of the cultural elites secularists, atheists, but some real commentators on culture. And someone brought in uh, the final work of music of an artist who just died. This was his last gift to the world," they said. And so they all listened to it together. Right? And afterwards it's like, "What an amazing way to leave this world. You know, giving us a great gift of beauty. He'll live on forever." and they're all going accolades. And he gets to Monsignor and they say, Monsignor, what are your thoughts about such a beautiful work of art? He said, I hate it. (laughs) He's dead. It will never happen again. It's over. I hate that that's done now. We can never experience his gift anymore. What he was giving voice to was what everyone was trying to distract themselves to. The limits of being human the authentic truth that everybody dies. I bet I could ask you right now, who, that, who do you know that has died that you'd love to hold their hand one more time, have a cup of coffee with them, see their face? Death is an assault to our humanity. We don't want loved ones to die. We want them to live forever. If you're Irish, you ever heard of the Irish goodbye? You just leave parties without saying goodbye. That's called the Irish goodbye, right? Why? Well, they don't like it. I'm the opposite. I'll take two hours. I'll say goodbye to everyone several times and just keep it. It's like both of the same thing. We don't like goodbyes. Monsignor was so vulnerable in his experience of this that this piece of music had him in touch with something that he wanted to live forever. But the source of it, this man was gone now. That resonated. That. That haunted me for a long time, mulling over that story. What was he seeing? What was he feeling? Because we have been so evangelized by something other than the gospel. And so we believe in ideologies. We believe in little slogans. In my parish the last couple months, we've had three tragic funerals. A 12-day-old died of meningitis. A 17-year-old died in a car wreck. And a 36-week-old baby was stillborn. And in all three, I have a similar homily for those type of tragedies, which is simply that all of us here hate this experience. But did you ever ask why? Isn't life hard? Isn't that just what happens? Bad things happen. That's that. Isn't that kind of the unspoken message we're told in culture? And yet no heart, knowing these families or being these families, would ever want this for someone. Because we're not made for tragedies. The very first quote, 1A, from Albacete's book, Cry of the Heart, which if you want a book to read on and chew on for the next 50 years, that's a great book. It's doable. It's accessible. It's just beautiful. Cry of the Heart. He says this, It is because evil is so alien to how we are made that suffering and death are so repulsive. We cannot imagine a history without the struggle that brings about suffering. But deep within our hearts, we hear a distant echo of what could have been, of how human life was really meant to be. That echo, he's quoting John Paul II there from TOB, is we realize we were made for life. And we realize this in always a contrary or mirrored way when we experience tragic deaths. Buried a 98-year-old and I was at the wake and being a young priest, I said something dumb. I said, well, 98 years, pretty good go of it, you know? And the person said, Father, it's true, but I would love another cup of coffee with my dad. That guy was in touch with his heart, his humanity. How often we just want to float a little above our human experience Because it hurts. But boy, when you're loved and you're around a safe person, that pain can come out. Think about a little kid. They fall, they hurt their knee, and they just freeze. They don't cry yet. And then mom comes and picks them up, and then it just... ah! (laughs) Once they felt loved, they were free to let it all out. Once they felt loved... You know, that's a beautiful sign for all of us is there's places in our hearts that are waiting to be unlocked. They just need some love. And not only is it the pain that comes out, but big dreams, huge dreams like I want everyone to be alive forever. I want all my friends to enjoy me and I want to enjoy them. I want to go out on a Friday night and have such good food and laugh so hard, and I never want that night to end. Do you remember in high school having a curfew and it's getting close and you start getting restless? And it wasn't until like you get home it's like, I don't want the night to end, but I have, it has to end. And now as a mature adult, I uh, say these hard phrases when I'm out. I got stuff to do in the morning. I got to get to bed. You just shut everything down. But my heart doesn't want that. But to be that vulnerable is hard. It's hard to live like a child. But remember, unless you turn and become like little children, you cannot enter the kingdom. I don't don't know any of you, so I don't say this about you, but I wonder how many chanceries in the world are full of children of God. People have dreams and can laugh and cry and really be like, you're so good, you did such a great job and celebrate. You ever see a little kid who loves to, my brother, see what my brother did? And also some of the ugliness comes out but then they hug real quick. I forgive you. Me too. Okay. Then they keep playing. So Monsignor, Asif was on, Monsignor, Asif, Monsignor Albacete was on the Charlie Rose show right after 9-11 happened. And they were going through all these interpretations of 9-11. And they asked him, you as a Monsignor, as a Roman Catholic priest, what did you see when you saw 9-11 happening? What was happening for you? And it felt a little heavy handed. You could tell he's like, Tell us something religious. And Monsignor Albacete said, I saw evil and human suffering, and it was terrible. That's all he said. Why? Because he knew if he was ever going to be able to proclaim Jesus, he had to have us be in touch with our humanity in order for Jesus to be the fulfillment and savior and healer and redeemer of humanity. If people aren't in touch with their humanity, what's he gonna redeem? He doesn't redeem our ideas about him or, our, or these vague notions of what humans should be. He actually is big enough to handle your real humanity, your real life story as it is, not edited for nice coffee talk or water cooler talk, but as it is, your real story, he's kind enough and big enough to handle. It's Monsignor Albacete hour. Here's another story. <clears throat> I believe this was in DC. He got picked up by a college student. He was gonna speak at the university and this girl was driving him to the, uh, universe, to the uh, priest residence where he was gonna stay at this university. And Monsignor, remember, he's a big man, okay? And there was, she was driving trying to find a spot. She's like, I'm not sure where I can park. And he goes, oh, right there. It's right in front of the building. You can park right there. She goes, no, no, that says residence only. And so she kept driving. And she ended up parking quite a ways away and got the suitcase out. And she's walking him. And he gets, he's walking to that parking spot where it said he could have parked and put his suitcase down. And he goes, my dear, he goes, you are so, uh, you are such a slave to ignoring your desires. He goes, that you would listen to a sign that says "For residents only." He goes, "I'm so in touch with my desires, not to have to walk this big body around. I would come up with any excuse to park here." <laughs> and he goes, "First off, I am a resident, so you could have parked here. I'm staying here for the night." He said, "But more importantly, you suffer from the reduction of desire." I would say all of us suffer from the reduction of our desires. What did you do when dad didn't come to the baseball game? When mom died early of cancer? When your parents got divorced? When in high school, good-looking, cool guys or girls didn't notice you? When you didn't get a great grade on that paper and everyone knew, and your parents looked disappointed? When you turns out you didn't have the, the body you thought you'd always have, or the intellect, or the job, or the fill-in-the-blank? What do we do when the dreams of our life don't come to fruition and our life looks kind of, uh, what do you do with that? Well, in order to handle the pain of disappointment, we want less out of life. Oh, I just won't want as much. What happens is you get a shrinked life and then you still want to be a good little Christian boy or girl. So you try to baptize a shrinking heart and Jesus becomes a great standard a moral reason why people are right and wrong, right? Or he becomes <clears throat> some good role model. But the idea that he's the fulfillment of our deepest desires. Uh, and so we relate to people out of these categories. Oh, that person's not doing what's morally right. We'll talk about a reductionist view of anybody. By the way, neither are we, we all go to confession. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Or we think like, here's the right theological answer. So everywhere we go, we want to teach people this newest book we read and give a bunch of quotes like I did with three pages of paper of quotes here. You tell them when you're quotes, you tell them what you're reading. I know the incarnation or this saint quote or this thing. And we start like wearing merit badges of Catholic things. I listen to the newest Father Mike Schmidt's video. I read Dr. Scott Hahn. I read Christopher West. And I feel like Jesus is going, ooh. (laughs) you're very Catholic. He's like, I didn't read any of Scott Hahn's books. Because that's not what makes you lovable. That's not what makes you a gift. It's not what you do. It's not because you believe the right things that make you good. God made you good. We're Catholic because it corresponds to the deepest desires of our heart that Jesus brought into the world. We are not Catholic because we're right and the world is wrong. You'll find, very rarely find those words in church teachings or in the gospel. Right and wrong are not mentioned a lot. Truth and goodness are. They have a different quality to them when you speak about them. So reduction of desire <clears throat> Just do a quick survey through the gospel, and Jesus is calling forth our desires. I talked about already in John chapter 1 what are you looking for? What are you seeking? To blind Bartimaeus, he says, What do you want me to do for you? Let's just pause there a second, that story. It is a weird thing that Bartimaeus asked for to see. Well, you're blind. That's kind of how that goes. You're blind. That's that. Maybe you want a warmer blanket. Maybe you want a better place to stay. Maybe you'd like your friends to forgive you. is like, I'd like to see. It's such a straightforward, simple, childlike request. What do you want me to do for you? I want to see. I wonder how many times people have voiced gigantic dreams to us in the church, and we didn't know how to receive the beauty of their heart. And we were afraid it wouldn't come true, so we somehow tried to tampen it down and reduce their desire. Oh well, you know, not everyone gets to see. So the beautiful thing is, you love by God, and you get to get the sacraments on Sunday, and you have a mom and dad who loves you, and a church who's always here for you. And they're like, "But I see." You know, it's pretty powerful. <clears throat> How about the man at the pool of Siloem? Jesus sees him as one of my favorite gospel passages. He's like, I tried for 14 years, and these guys keep getting in front of me, and I'm just stuck here and I've tried for so long. And Jesus is like, Do you even want to be well? Why? Because he knows that for the the delay between desire and fulfillment is weary. It's really hard to carry desires for a long time. And so our hearts begin to wither. And so Jesus goes right to the core of the guy and says, Do you want to be well? Is that still alive in you? Is your belly still have fire in it? Do you believe that he can do all things? Where? In and through you and me in our vulnerabilities, our littleness, our poverty, our weakness. Right in those places, he can shine the most fully. But We can't hide them. We have to open them. I have a longing which makes me poor because I can't fulfill it. Monsignor Alba used to teach this, and he used to use the phrase, all of you are disproportionately structured. And he says, even if you don't know what that means, it's very fancy. You can go around and tell people that, and they'll say, ooh, you're very smart. And you will yes, I am. <laughs> disproportionately structured means this, is you have desires, as I said it before, you have desires you can't fulfill. You have needs you can't fulfill. There's a poverty in you that you can't take care of on your own. But God... And the people he chooses to put in our life can begin to mend, awaken, guide, lead, and even at times totally fulfill. Remember, the ultimate fulfillment is in heaven. But we can have some real taste of it along the way. We are not in the desert. It is a fallen world, yet redeemed and loved by Jesus. He heals all things. And so we can get real glimpses even now, not just at the hour-long liturgy on Sunday, but hopefully there. But real beautiful moments of wanting to feel loved and cherished, and all of a sudden one of your friends is able to meet you right where you need with just like a simple gesture, and you go, I really needed that today. Or all of a sudden, you, you wanted to feel like a gift, and someone needed something, and you're able to say, I just want to show you, you're doing a great job today. And you became a gift to them. You really can have these real moments, these real tastes. So what are these desires? What are they like? First page. (coughs) 1G. Now, Pope Francis has enjoyed writing little documents on people. He wrote one on Francis de Sales. He wrote one recently on Blaise Pascal. And he supposedly one on Teresa LeSue's coming out, which I'm very excited for. But... This is what he wrote in this one on Blaise Pascal entitled, The Grandeur and Misery of Man. Pascal sets forth his great argument. What is it then that this longing and this feeling of helplessness cry out to us? If not that man once enjoyed a true happiness, of which there now remains but an empty trace that he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, Yet none of these can provide it. These echoes, these longings within you are not naive. You are not immature and selfish. What keeps us feeling so immature is we keep ignoring them, and so they come out compulsively. But when we learn to receive and pray and listen to these longings in these little places within us, we'll recognize an echo of God's original plan. Jesus came to first affirm your humanity. That's why he became human, which means he came to awaken your humanity and then second, show you the way towards fulfillment. But first, he wants to awaken it. Jesus is first and foremost a yes to you, to your existence. When he took on flesh and became one of us, it's like he's saying, I want you I want you to be alive at this time and in this place because you are a gift. Not for what you will do or can do, but right now you radiate beauty and goodness and glory and you are lovable. And he's made certain desires and contours in your heart to help you live that out and he came to affirm and awaken. Then secondarily does he come to heal and correct. But what will he heal and correct if we're not awakened and affirmed? We're going to think he hates the things we hate. One of my first spirit directors used to say, when we go to God, we should just be honest and say, if you knew me the way I knew me, you'd hate me the way I hate me. There are parts of you you don't love yet. And Jesus really loves them. There's parts of you you can only hear as a destructive desire or a sinful pattern within you. This is wrong. This is bad. I can't engage this. And Jesus is saying, I know what's in there. Its manifestation may be twisted, but underneath is a longing that needs to be seen and affirmed. And just so you don't think I'm nuts saying these things, let's go to Pope Benedict. One eye. Even when God is rejected or denied, the thirst for the infinite that dwells in men and women is not slaked. Human beings, unbeknownst to themselves, are reaching out for the infinite, but in mistaken directions, in drugs, in a disorderly form of sexuality, in totalizing technologies, in success at every cost, and even in the deceptive forms of piety. Recognizing that we have been made for the infinite means that taking the route of purification from what we have called false infinites. Notice how he doesn't say, "Recognize you've been made for the infinite, we therefore shut down our desires. He says they need purified. They need healed. They need to be brought into communion. Show me your withered hand. Would you love the lowest and the least in you? as well as in other people. But he doesn't come to shut down. If you see a guy eating out of a dumpster, you don't yell at him for being hungry. You teach him where real food can be found. That's how we evangelize the world. We know what you're looking for. We also are looking for it. We're made of the same stuff. We don't look down at you. We are with you. We're all part of the clay, the stuff. We have found what satisfies. And as Pope Francis says, enjoy the gospel, the first paragraph, he says, we need to encounter Jesus daily. Daily. But remember, where does encounter happen? In our hearts, the catechism says. So yes, it's going to Mass, but it's, it's praying the Mass from our hearts. Vulnerability, accessible In the scriptures, yes, pray a rosary or pray with Lexio Divina, but make sure all the places of your heart are being brought to the prayer time. Psychologists call it dissociative behaviors or dissociative ways. Some people call it spiritual bypassing, but it's simply to step out of our humanity in order to have some sort of spiritual experience. I'm angry, I'm mad over here, and so when I go to pray, I'll say, Lord, if you could just give the world some peace And feed everyone who's hungry. Amen. And Jesus is like, well, that's a beautiful prayer, but you're, you're still angry over here. Do you want to talk about that? No. Let's just talk about the beautiful things that other people would be really proud of if they heard me praying this. Oh, Lord, thank you for not making me like the rest, gluttons and adulterers. And then Jesus says, that guy does not go home justified, i.e., he does not go home in communion with God. Who does? Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I am weak, I am broken, I'm confused, I don't even know how to do this thing called prayer. Just please, please help me. St. Augustine says we are beggars before God, not because he's holding out on us, but because we're so in touch with how desperate we need love and grace and help. And remember, God sometimes answers it in prayer, but one of his favorite ways is we might voice it in a time of prayer, but then to meet that need through a friend, through family, through a priest or religious or another minister of the church who can radiate someone who says, I see you, you're really good. One note on that Benedict quote when he says, these forms of false, um, uh, false infinities, and he says, even deceptive forms of piety. It's important because, uh, obviously, since I love Albacete, I have a flair for the dramatic, but he, uh, but there's ways of doing our spiritual practices where we miss out on things. Pope John Paul II wrote a document on the rosary. It's a beautiful document. I've never read it. But he says over and over again, it's a means to contemplating the Trinity. A means, which means every single bead does not need to be prayed for it to fulfill its purpose. One of my great joys, I love taking people who love the rosary and encourage them when one of those mysteries really speaks to you that day, or for some reason your imagination kicks in on that day and it's Thursday and you can just like, man, I could just, for some reason I just imagine the sound of the water trickling off of Jesus as he's being baptized. It really captured me all of a sudden that day. Put the rosary down. Soak in that experience. God is talking. Mary did her job. As a, little, as a mom, she picked you up and showed you God. and She's like, look. And you're looking. It'd be weird to say, well, I have 48 more beads. I got to go back over here. <laughs> Mary's like, no, 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 no. You go just stay right with him. Everything will happen that you wanted to happen. And then sometimes nothing happens. We're just faithful at 20 minutes. And that's beautiful too. The false forms of piety when we forget ends and means. The goal is to be intimately available to God in utter vulnerability and to receive his vulnerable communications back. It's deeply human and deeply relational because we can't be anything else. That's what it means to be human. One more quote on desire here. This is the 1H from John Paul II. It is Jesus, in fact, that you seek when you dream of happiness. He is waiting for you when nothing else you find satisfies you. He is the beauty you are so attracted. It is He who provokes you with that thirst for the fullness of that will not let you settle for compromise. It is he who urges you to shed the masks of a false life. We've been saying vulnerability, poverty, same thing. It is Jesus who stirs in you the desire to do something great with your lives, the will to follow an ideal, the refusal to allow yourself to be ground down by mediocrity. This is John Paul II trying to evangelize our interiority, which is important because Albacete coined the phrase, the secularization of our interiority, meaning we think it's meaningless. I don't know why I have these feelings. I don't know why I want what I want. I just do whatever. I don't know. It's just there. It's like, whoa, there's so much more happening inside of you. And this is John Paul trying to evangelize it, saying that thirst, that movement, that longing, that resistance to just staying status quo and wanting something big, that's Jesus at work in you. Your desires are not infallible, but they are indispensable. It's a messy process. All right, Jesus, definitely call me this because I want this. You pray, and, you're like, and you go to Father Martin. and say, I want to do this. And he's like, well, no, because X, Y, and Z. You're like, oh, gosh, how does that, but then was I dumb for wanting these things? No, they're not infallible. We don't need to shut down our desires if in talking out with community, we realize, oh, that's not it. But they're indispensable. The church needs to know what's happening inside of you in order for the Archdiocese of Detroit to fulfill God's dream. God has a dream for this archdiocese that he doesn't have for any other. Because you're not in any other. You're a part of this one. And you're a part of the church he wants to come alive. And that's going to echo and resound in all of you in different ways from religious to ordained, to lay, to single, to young, medium, old, educated, uneducated. It's going to be through it all. At its best, this is what the synod on synodality is trying to do, right? It's trying to hear what is the Holy Spirit doing in people? What are the desires, as John Paul II says, that he's awakening you to do something great? What is that thirst he's put in you? What does your dream of happiness look like? And I'm getting passionate about it, but it can become so quiet. Just a simple longing. Or just a gentle upward movement. Mom could I have some Cheerios for a little kid? That's the whole dream of happiness right there. And mom says, sure, get some Cheerios. And guess what that kid walked away knowing? My desires matter to someone. When a baby cries in the middle of the night and mom and dad, one of them comes into console, that baby's learning I'm not an orphan. I'm a son or daughter. And my whole experience and existence means something to someone else. I am loved, that matures in different ways with us and God. But it's always going to be our littleness, our needs for healing, for blessing to be heard and seen, opened up vulnerably. We don't pray as orphans, we pray as loved children. And as St. Augustine says, God delays at times. Why? Because you didn't try hard enough. No. God delays at times. Why? Well, because you were distracted in prayer and you sinned last night, and so you're bad. No. God delays because he says the size of the gift he wants to give you is too big compared to your desire. And so he's waiting for your desire to expand so that, like the Blessed Mother, we can house infinity within us. C.S. Lewis says it. We, our desires are too small. He says, We dream of dancing around in mud pies outside of like different street corners when God has a whole vacation at the sea planned for us. Yes, ultimately in heaven. Salvation is about heaven. But there's real moments of it here. Simple beauties. So all of this is in the background in that final paragraph of that Angelus address by Pope Francis I gave you to read at the beginning. If we want to be good apostles, we have to be like children. Just stop right there for a second. I mean, that's gold. So when, our, when your new archbishop gets here in the next couple of years, hopefully, all right, and he comes in and he sees you guys, you know, Playing cards. (laughs) You're like, no, we're we're good apostles. We're kids. (laughs) Cutting toast off your peanut butter and jelly. Okay, so if you want to be a good apostle, you have to be like children. Sit on God's lap. And from there, look at the world with trust and love. In order to bear witness that God is the Father. And that he alone transforms our hearts and gives us joy and peace. That we cannot give ourselves. It's always relational. Relational. So I'll end with one little final story about me. When I got to my parish, it's got similar dynamics of this at St. Hugo's in that it's one of the wealthier, if not the wealthiest parish in the Diocese of Cleveland. Um, we have 42 to 4,300 families, right? And um, <clears throat> it's very, very big. I got there during August of 2020. So the pandemic was still in reeling its head and all the dynamics came with that. I was 37 years old at the time. I'd never led anything. Uh, And I actually never even thought about being a pastor. It just never dawned on me. I just was just doing whatever I was busy doing. So now I had to think about being a pastor. I inherited a staff of 23, five buildings and 11 acres. Uh, My first finance meeting, they said, we're in the black. And I said, oh, no. And they go, what? And I go, well, don't we want to be in the red? They're like, no, red's bad. Black is good. I said, well, in the theological world, red means blood, and blood is life, and black is death. So I'm a little confused. <laughs> I had no idea. Second finance council meeting, they said, we got all this money set aside for cap X uh, stuff. And I go, what's cap X?" they go, capital expenditures. I said, great, follow-up question. What's capital expenditures? No idea. I came from the world of acting, and music, and then philosophy, and theology. I felt so overwhelmed, I, I didn't even try to sit in his lap. I didn't engage my parish from a place of trust and love. I looked at it as, oh, there's a lot of crap to do here, and I just have to work really hard and really disciplined. And the reason it's not happening is because I took 10 minutes to text message a friend in the middle of the day. i have been distracted doing that and look, playing kitty cannon or whatever. I would have gotten more done, and then the parish would be in a better place. It's my fault. And over time, the help of a good spiritual director and some friends I began to realize I wasn't sitting in the security and love of the Father as I was looking at my parish. And as I started doing that, not only did I have different views, I had different desires. I was seeing people that I wasn't even seeing before. I was no longer caring about certain comments and caring a lot about other ones. Prayer and ministry was no longer draining. It became life giving because it was all of a part of this unfolding plan that I felt like the Father was slowly whispering in my ears in this moment of intimacy. Our world, through news and blogs and family and friends, tells us to look at the world around us basically as an orphan. No one's going to be there for you. It's that tribe against that tribe. And might makes right and the strong will win. Perhaps this is where the idea of dying to oneself needs to be most felt. We need to die to tribalism and triumphalism and let rise childlike hearts that need a dad and need a mom. And we're given God and Mary. And from communion with them, to begin to dream about the archdiocese and the cities and the towns that make up this diocese in the world. Not from hearts that can do it, precisely from hearts that are like, I can't, I really need help. And from that cry, we begin to experience what my favorite Psalm passage is. I am poor and needy, but the Lord thinks of me. So poverty and neediness become a very blessed place because that's where the Lord goes with his most amount of grace and love. Hence, blessed are the poor, for the kingdom is theirs. The whole The whole stinking kingdom is being given where? To your little parts, the place that are most dependent in you.